0: This podcast is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading source of audiobooks. If you would like to support it, go to audibletrial.com forward Harris. Welcome to the Waking Up Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Apologies in advance, I'm getting over yet another cold. I'm beginning to wonder whether my commitment to vegetarianism isn't just a strategy cooked up by the cold virus to prepare me as a vector by which to lay waste to the rest of society. I have just gotten so many colds since I stopped killing animals or paying others to kill them on my behalf. Well, this is an Ask Me Anything Podcast which I'm doing a day after the Brussels attacks, so the questions I have here really don't reflect what has been going on, so it's I feel somewhat out of sync with what's been going on. Maybe I'll just say a few words about Brussels at the outset. Everything I've written about Islam and jihadism and profiling and related topics should be viewed through the lens of events like this. I really don't have any more to say about this kind of thing. But I'll just give you a glimpse of what my life is like on this issue. So I'm at a conference talking about things like artificial intelligence and I open my phone to discover that there's an article circulating calling me a white supremacist. Now needless to say Reza Aslan has circulated it saying, what do you think Sam Harris means when he says profile anyone who could conceivably be Muslim? even though in the very paragraph where I make that claim, I make it clear that white guys like me also fit the profile I'm talking about. And then the very next day, we have attacks like these in Belgium. And you see the pictures of the likely suicide bombers. And once again, they're not blonde-haired old ladies from Iceland. They're not Japanese schoolgirls. They're Middle Eastern young men. And again, let me spell this out. White guys like me have also been recruited ISIS and Al-Qaeda. So I'm not putting myself or anyone who looks like me out of the profile, but not everyone is in the profile. My only point about profiling is that we have to admit that we know what we're looking for. We are looking for jihadists. 100% of jihadists are Muslim. In a place like an airport, in addition to random searches and searching all luggage, Our security personnel should be looking for people who stand a chance of being jihadists. Now, out in the world, they should be looking for Muslim extremists who may be planning some sort of attack. Where should they look for them? Everywhere at random? Is that really what anyone believes? It seems rather obvious that they should be reaching out to the Muslim community. More important, the Muslim community should be scrutinizing itself, profiling itself, one might say. If you are a moderate Muslim, you have to admit that there is a unique problem of religious extremism in your own faith community. And if this offends you, you are part of the problem. And if you don't want Muslims demonized, you have to stop obfuscating this issue. What's more, you have to stop attacking people as bigots and Islamophobes for expressing their totally sane concerns about Islamism and jihadism. And as for the presidential election, assuming it's going to be Clinton versus Trump, it's time for Clinton to stop mincing words or lying outright on this topic. There are no liberals who are suddenly going to vote for Trump because Hillary says something politically incorrect. So to make this clear, I think Trump is dangerously unqualified to be president. And his apparent unawareness of this his, his total lack of concern for his obvious ignorance is fairly terrifying. But in his own idiotic way, at least he is naming the problem. At least he's not pretending that we are all so worried about the IRA or that Middle Eastern Christians are just as likely to be suicide bombers as Muslims are. Just think of what a significant attack in the U.S. prior to our election could do, if Hillary continues to sound delusional on this topic. She has to start using words like Islamic extremism and Islamism and jihadism and political Islam and Muslim terrorism. The so-called war on terror is not a war against a generic problem of terrorism. It's a war, as Majid Nawaz has said over and over, against a global jihadist insurgency. Unless Clinton starts making sense on this topic, she's going to give ISIS a vote in electing our next president, and you can be sure they have a favorite candidate. So to say any more here, I think I will just be saying things you've all heard me say a hundred times. I mean, maybe there's just there's one more point to clarify. I, I clearly have followed. Majid's line in distinguishing Islamism from Islam. And I've been hearing many disgruntled noises from readers who think this is intellectually dishonest. So I, maybe I should make it clear how I see this. I am a critic of all religion. I think the notion of revelation and the notion that faith trumps reason is dangerous and intrinsically divisive and something we have to get over. And I have made no secret of the fact that I think Islam is the worst religion on most points, currently ruling the minds of a significant part of humanity. So my view hasn't changed here. There is a war of ideas that has to be waged and won with Islam, and with anyone who believes that the Quran is the perfect word of the creator of the universe. But there's a distinction between nominal Muslims, or those who are fairly non-committal in their faith, or those who have some interpretation of the faith that allows them to ignore many of its edicts, and Islamists. And there's a difference between Islamists and jihadists. And here I follow Majid's definitions. Islamism is the commitment to impose Islam on the rest of society. It's intrinsically political. And jihadism is that variant of Islamism that intends to do this by force, as opposed to winning elections or some other process. And I agree with Maja that the way forward is to convince the Muslim world to be increasingly secular and liberal, and that is a much more promising door to try to force 1.6 billion people through than the doorway of atheism. Now, insofar as I can persuade Muslims to be atheists and disavow their faith, that's also something I'm happy to do. And occasionally I notice... Some success on that front, but I think it is far less realistic in any reasonable time frame to expect 1.6 billion Muslims to apostatize than it is to expect them to reform their religion in a direction of secularism and liberalism. And I will not pretend to be optimistic on that score either. Many of you think that is just a fool's errand. What more reasonable project? Do you have to recommend? So, my view here is that wherever a distinction between Islam and Islamism doesn't exist, we have to create it. Muslims have to create it, and non Muslims have to insist that they do. And if you're feeling powerless here, if you're feeling there's nothing you can do that's useful after an event like this, I would say that the one thing you can do is lose your patience for people. Obfuscating the problem. Lose your patience for liars. It is not a lie to say that there is a difference between Islamism and Islam, because one can be created. There are many Muslims who do not want a global caliphate. There are many Muslims who do not want homosexuals thrown off of rooftops. There are many Muslims for whom Islam in some form is important, but who are no more religious than the least religious person you met yesterday. And these people need to be supported. These people need to win a war of ideas. And where they're not waging one, they have to be encouraged to wage it. And the only way I know to do that is for all of us to keep speaking honestly about the nature of the problem. Okay, so I got your questions on Reddit. And when I last looked at this page, there were over 1,300 of them. So needless to say, I will not make much headway, but I really thank you for delivering so many questions and voting them up, and I, I can only assume that the ones that came first now were the ones that in fact were reliably voted up. Some of these questions surprise me, but and maybe I'll dig around a little to find others that are of interest. So there are many questions on anxiety, And one person wrote, Anxiety is a monster that is crippling and paralyzing and keeps you in a loop of debilitating negative emotions, even when one desperately wants out. What are the causes? What can one do to help themselves? What steps, big or small, do you suggest? Well, the the neurophysiology of anxiety is pretty well understood, but I don't think understanding it in any detail really helps you. There are drugs you can take to mitigate the effects of anxiety. I should say, upfront, I have, have no clinical experience, and this is not my area. I would think that if anxiety is really crippling, there's some role for drugs to play, whether it's beta blockers that impede the effect of adrenaline on your heart rate, so you don't get the racing heart experience, or anti-anxiety drugs that work on the neurotransmitter GABA. But in general, the people who work with anxiety therapeutically to my understanding, don't recommend you take those drugs and that you do something more along the line of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is to say you, you expose yourself in manageable ways to the things that provoke anxiety and you reframe them conceptually. You become open to feeling the effects of anxiety and realize you can get through it. And there's certainly a role for meditation and mindfulness to play in this part of the process. For instance, many people are afraid to fly, and even those of us who aren't especially afraid to fly can feel anxious in significant turbulence. Now, why do we feel anxious? Well, we have some thought that turbulence might be dangerous, right? That it makes it more likely the plane will crash. And, of course, truly significant turbulence can cause a plane to crash. But this, as we know from the statistics of plane crashes, is a very, very rare thing. So there there are two levels to respond to this experience so as to mitigate anxiety. So picture this. You're in an airplane, and it begins to bounce. Now, unless you're in that rare and horrible experience of being actually thrown around the cabin so as to get injured, it's very likely that the bouncing is not physically painful, right? This is you're not being harmed by this sensation. And in other contexts you would subject yourself to even more violent bouncing and not be worried about it at all. You might go on some ride at an amusement park which exerts greater force on you bodily and you do it because you're seeking that experience out. Now on an airplane it's totally unwelcome to you because you're afraid of dying. But if you just take the raw sensations, they are not your problem. It's what they portend is your interpretation of them that worries you. There are at least two levels at which you can deal with this. First is to think conceptually about the nature of the problem and about what you fear. Is it rational to worry that your plane will crash if you're experiencing turbulence? No, it actually isn't. The likelihood of dying in a plane crash Is minuscule. Over the course of your journey, you should begin to worry as you leave the airport and get in an Uber or a taxi or drive yourself home in your own car. That's when your risk of mortality begins to peak. So, if you understand that, if you understand that every moment in a plane is in fact safer than many moments you spend on the ground, certainly safer than when you're walking as a pedestrian fixated on your smartphone and stepping into the crosswalk, that's when your adrenaline should surge or when you're driving and glancing down at your phone to see what text just came in. Those are the moments where the sweat should begin beating up on your forehead. So when you're in a plane and it's begun to bounce, it is in fact unreasonable to worry that the bouncing means much of anything. If you understand that, that actually can have an effect. Then you can become willing to just experience the raw sensations of turbulence. Then you can cease to interpret the experience as a sign of actual danger. The other level at which you can address this, and and these are totally compatible moves, I recommend both of them, is to become mindful of the feeling of anxiety itself. What is it? And what does it mean? Well, it's just sensation. It's just a pattern of energy in your body. And it actually doesn't mean anything at the level of raw sensation. You might have thoughts about it, and very likely much of your thinking in that moment is purposed toward trying to figure out how not to feel that way, or not to let it get worse. But if you'll step out of your thoughts and just become willing to feel the raw sensation of anxiety, Actually, just surrender your resistance to it, just feel it as energy, it can lose its meaning. It can become very difficult to distinguish from what, under another framing, would be a positive experience like excitement. How do you know the difference between being anxious about something that's about to happen and being excited? For the most part, it is the thoughts you're thinking when you're feeling that arousal. There's a cognitive conceptual overlay on top of this raw feeling you can consciously reframe things or you can step out of it altogether and just feel the raw energy of this experience and when you do that anxiety can be like any other experience that has no meaning for you as a person really i mean it doesn't say anything about you so something like indigestion or itching let's say you're let's say you have a rash on your elbow and it's itching Okay, that doesn't say anything deep about you as a person. That has no psychological implications. It might be unpleasant. It might be extraordinarily unpleasant, but it doesn't reach into your sense of who you are. The deepest way to respond to anxiety, and again, I'm not saying that there is no case in which drugs are valuable or even necessary. There may very well be. But for anxiety in its more ordinary range, the deep way to respond to it is to become willing to feel it to cease to interpret it as important and to function in the midst of it and then it will pass anxiety rises and falls like any other emotion and if you're not continually thinking the thoughts that make you anxious it actually can't stay around very long and this is true of other unpleasant emotions like anger and sadness and They're continually resurrected by our thoughts. And we're spending most of our time thinking without knowing that we're thinking. So mindfulness in particular is a very good antidote to this problem. But the trick is you can't apply it as an antidote. You can't be mindful of anxiety so that it will go away. You can't push it away with meditation. Or at least that attempt is more likely to fail. What you're really after in those moments is genuine equanimity, real acceptance of the energy of this emotion. Become interested in it. Become willing to feel it. Just let it burn bright in you and discover that it doesn't matter. It simply comes and it goes and you can function. Next question. What are your thoughts on immortality or at least living a very, very long time as pursued by researchers like Aubrey de Grey? Do you think it's possible? Do you think it's desirable? Aubrey, If you're not familiar with Aubrey de Grey, you should watch some of his talks. I think he's given two TED Talks. He has some very good arguments against people's ethical intuitions here. Many people seem to think that if we could cure aging and death and become immortal or live thousands of years, that there's something unethical about that project, that it's it's either so unnatural as to be unethical, or it represents some kind of selfishness that we should be suspicious of. I think Aubrey's rejoinder to those intuitions is compelling. As to whether it's possible, I think it probably is in principle possible. I think, you know, Aubrey describes aging as an engineering problem. There are not that many ways in the end to grow old and die. I think he points to seven different ways in which our bodies begin to break down. Cancer is one of those ways. The depositing of junk inside of cells or between cells is another way. There are just not that many ways that an old person on the verge of death differs from a person in the prime of his or her life. So I agree that if we understood those ways completely and we could intervene biochemically and make the necessary changes, well then we may find that aging is now no longer a problem. We can keep repairing ourselves. And I think that would be a good thing. I think, as Aubrey argues, aging is the worst thing there is. And the only reason why anyone's tempted to accept it is because it, it appears currently unavoidable. But if you think Alzheimer's should be cured and you think cancer should be cured, well then aging is the super problem you should want solved. Because each of these evils along with many others, are mere symptoms of aging. Yeah, I agree with Aubrey. I, yeah, I think if there's any way in which I'm skeptical of his discussion of this topic, it may be just a basic uncertainty about whether he's too optimistic about the, the timeline here. But I think it's a, an incredibly interesting area to work in, and I think the taboos around declaring one's intent to cure aging are fascinating, both ethically and culturally. And I think Aubrey um, has said some very uh, useful things in that area. Next question. Sam, I remember you mentioning getting flack from Majid about not liking hip-hop. I'm curious what sort of music you do listen to. Stravinsky, Radiohead, Enya. Well, it's not that I don't like hip-hop. I got a lot of grief about this. I just, I'm not a hip-hop fan. I'm just not, I don't listen to a lot of hip-hop, but I don't recoil at the sound of hip-hop. On this list, I would pick Radiohead of the three choices. The issue with me and music is, one, I'm not a musician, so I'm I'm, I'm fairly uneducated in this area, and there's a lot of music I like, but I don't spend a lot of time listening to music because I can't work to music, certainly not music with lyrics. I can't read to it, I can't write to it. I just spend a lot of time trying to ignore the music. I just find silence works better for me. And when I'm not working, I'm a bit of an information junkie. And so I'm listening to audiobooks or podcasts or the news in the car or while traveling. So it's, it's, there's not a lot of time for music to get in. And if I'm going to listen to music, I often just put on Spotify or something now. And I, in fact, I don't even know what I'm listening to. I just have something that some AI somewhere is piping into my brain based on the few Radiohead songs I've selected. And maybe that will be the future of ideas, too. At a certain point, you won't know what book you're reading or what lecture you're listening to. Something like Spotify will just start feeding you disconnected ideas. Next question. Why aren't your books translated into Arabic? I'm an Arab who is fortunate enough to be fluent in English, but many Arabs are not as fortunate as I am. I read all your books, and I love them all. I just wish they could reach a larger Arab audience, especially the book Islam and the Future of Tolerance. I've been sheepish about letting my books get translated into Arabic. There hasn't been much demand, as you might imagine, but on the few occasions when someone has asked permission to translate one of my books, it's been a long time since this has happened, but I remember declining because I just didn't want to have Salman Rushdie's experience. Of learning one day that one of his translators got killed. And when you're talking about Arabic or Urdu or any other language from a Muslim-majority country, I begin to worry about this sort of thing. So that's why. Maybe that will change. Can you please do a podcast with Richard Lang, disciple and close friend of the late Douglas Harding, about The Headless Way, the westernized version of Zogchen? I imagine getting a Dzogchen master on a podcast could be tough, and their message a little abstruse. But the way Lang and Harding talk about seeing is thrilling. I don't actually know Richard Lang. I've seen a couple of his videos online, and he seems to make perfect sense on this topic, as did Douglas Harding. I will talk about this practice more, and I'll talk about it in particular in the meditation app I'm building. But It's a little difficult for a podcast. So much of it is visual. The exercises that Douglas Harding recommended and which I'm sure Lang teaches are based on changing your relationship to your visual field. And I write about this a little bit in my book, Waking Up. We define our sense of self visually in particular. It's not the only way. You still if you feel like a self with your eyes open, you're going to feel like a self with your eyes closed, but the experience of selflessness can be very striking with your eyes open because it changes your felt sense of, of subject-object perception with respect to everything that you see. And the way that Harding described this, in particular in his book On Having No Head, is as the experience of headlessness, where he, he would look out at his visual field And then he would look for his head. He would recognize that his head was not among the contents of his visual field. And as you listen to me now, you might do this, just with your eyes open, look at whatever it is you can see, and notice that your face or your head is not among the things that you see. In fact, where your head is supposed to be, there's just the world. and. If you become sensitive to this consideration, if you look for what you presume you're looking out of and fail to find it, you can have a, as the questioner says, a, a thrilling sense of having lost the feeling of subject object perception. And this itself can become a basis of mindfulness. This can be the thing you pay attention to when you meditate, as opposed to your breath or any other object of attention. And some very Powerful changes in your conscious experience can happen the more you do this. But as far as talking about this at length on a podcast, it's a little difficult because much of what needs to be said needs to be indicated visually. And so it it definitely lends itself more to video than audio. But I will try to be precise about it in my meditation app. What are your preferred news sources? Well, nothing especially esoteric here. I read the New York Times every day. I read The Atlantic. I listen to NPR. I watch television news rather often, whether it's the the evening news or 60 Minutes or Frontline or Vice documentaries. I'll go to the BBC website sometimes. And often somebody on social media will send me a link to something more esoteric, like an English language paper in Pakistan, for instance. So I, I do see things that are off the beaten path, but for the most part, I have very standard and uninteresting sources of news, but I do consume a fair amount of it. One of the virtues of social media is that if I haven't noticed something through any of these channels, I very often hear about it from one of you. Sam, I heard you say once before that the left has one advantage over the right and that it has a self-correcting mechanism. Well, now that the left seems to be going off the deep end, we need those mechanisms. I'm not sure I, I said that or at least I don't think I said that it was an advantage. In fact, it's a disadvantage. The self-criticism of the left is a disadvantage in its tug-of-war with the right. The left eats its own in a way that the right never seems to. And what you find on the left is a criticism of one's own tribe, which can lead to a kind of masochism. Now, short of masochism, obviously self-criticism is a intellectual virtue. It's very good to wonder whether or not one is wrong, to wonder whether or not one's opponent, politically, might have a point, to wonder whether or not one's group has treated other groups, especially less powerful groups, unfairly. And not to have any of those concerns really streamlines one's politics because every you can just think about in-group and out-group with a clear conscience. And conservatives, certainly more authoritarian ones, certainly bigoted ones, certainly xenophobic ones, they can do this with a clear conscience. So it's on the left, where virtues of tolerance and self-criticism, fairness, tend to be found, where the, the specter of self-doubt begins to loom. And you find people on the left, and people like Noam Chomsky are the ultimate example of this. This is really the golem one produces when one performs the final incantation on the left you wind up with total masochism. We are always wrong. We are the worst. We deserve whatever is coming to us. That is the the crevasse into which much of the left has fallen morally and politically. That's their view, for instance, of U.S. foreign policy and things like the war on terror. There is a kind of asymmetric warfare between left and right. You have someone like Trump, for instance, running for president, where He does not pay the price for his obvious dishonesty the way someone like Hillary Clinton pays the price for hers in front of her audience. Trump can get up there and speak in an almost information-free way, just giving voice to pure bombast and platitudes and contradict himself over and over again, reveal his ignorance on topics of huge importance and merely bully and bloviate when that ignorance is pointed out, and he seems to pay no penalty for this. Whereas someone on the left, someone like Clinton or Sanders, if they were committing precisely the same sins, again, saying nothing of substance and saying it dishonestly much of the time, I think they would receive much more criticism from their own base. Now, again, this is not, I don't want to make too much of this difference. The left is insane in its own ways and capable of, of shocking dishonesty. And I've complained about this a lot with respect to my own antagonists. But there, there is an asymmetry here that is interesting and politically consequential. The left does eat its own in a way that the right doesn't. That's not an advantage politically, though it is connected to a virtue that I think the left tends to have more than the right, which is a capacity for self-criticism, a capacity to wonder whether or not you should take your opponent's point of view more seriously. And that, when constrained by basic human sanity and a, uh, a desire to maintain civilization against its enemies, is a very good thing. Next question. Fame is often noted for its potential to inflate one's ego, over the years as a writer, you've certainly established a fair bit of celebrity for yourself. Did you find that the initial onset of your fame altered your sense of self ego at all, even temporarily? If so, how? Do you credit your background in meditation for helping you keep level-headed? I certainly don't think of myself as famous, although obviously some number of people know who I am, and I sometimes get recognized in public. I actually occupy kind of uncanny valley with respect to fame so think of what the experience of a genuinely famous person is like a real famous person goes into public knowing that he or she will be recognized there's no doubt of that right so take the extreme example you've got someone like Tom Cruise so you have a movie star when he or she goes into public there's no question about whether or not they'll be recognized and so they They begin every encounter with another person on the assumption that that person recognizes them. That's got to be weird, but there's really no basis for surprise when the person says, hey, I, I love your work, or when that person proves that he or she has recognized the famous person. Now, I don't live in that space at all. I mean, the only place where I have that experience would be at like a, I mean, the ultimate case would be if I went to an atheist conference where everyone, every attendee at the conference would know who I am, then I have the normal experience of being a famous person where I walk out into the lobby and people recognize me and they come up and talk to me and there's no basis for surprise. But my experience of, quote, fame is to know that most people have no idea who I am. And it's a perfectly rational assumption to assume that I can walk into a restaurant or walk into a room and be perfectly anonymous and yet I have the experience of people with some regularity coming up and introducing themselves, having recognized me. And I always find this surprising. And most of these encounters are, are totally pleasant. In fact, no one has ever come up to say anything unpleasant. There's nobody who's come up who has then proved to be anything other than a real fan who has something positive to say about my work. So this leads me to believe, in fact, know that there are many people who are recognizing me who hate my work. Right, and are simply not saying anything, and that's a little weird. So again, there's a kind of uncanny valley here where I am walking around, assuming that I'm not at all famous, because in the spectrum of things, I'm barely recognizable, and yet I continually get recognized and continually get surprised that this person knew who I was. And this can often be weird because it can happen long after an encounter has started. So I could be having dinner and ordering food from the waiter, and only at the end of the meal, after many minutes of interaction with this person, will the person then say, oh, and by the way, I really love your work, right? And then I'm left in the very weird position of wondering whether or not, and this this is a feature of my mind that I would not have known existed. It makes me wonder whether or not I conducted myself in that exchange the way I would have wanted to had I known I was Sam Harris the writer or Sam Harris the public person for this person. And that's that's psychologically interesting to me. the, The fact that if somebody knows who I am, I'm slightly concerned to protect that person's view of me as a writer or a thinker or a public person in a way that I'm not if it's an anonymous encounter and they're just meeting me. I don't know what to make of that. So my experience of quote fame is a weird one. I just get surprised by it and don't really know what to make of those experiences. Another component, which is purely a positive one, is that insofar as other people know who I am, it gives me a kind of agency to reach out and connect with people whose work I value and and with whom I want to have a conversation. So it's useful for me to have done something publicly that people recognize if I want to start a conversation with other people playing similar games. That part of it's been purely positive, but as to whether or not it's inflated my ego, I can't say that it has. I think if anything, moving in circles with other people who are accomplishing a lot, for instance, going to a conference, that's just filled with smart, successful people, even ones who are only in the audience, right, who are not speaking at the conference, a place like TED being a classic example, that doesn't tend to inflate one's ego, or at least it doesn't inflate mine. It makes me uh, worry that I'm not doing enough in most cases. So making a successful connection with the world, which is one cause of fame, doing something that other people want to pay attention to, That has, if anything, made my ego healthier in the sense that it's just reduced a certain kind of concern. I now know that if I have something that I want to say, I will have an opportunity to say it in one form or another, whether that's writing or podcasting or giving a public talk or being interviewed by a journalist. These opportunities keep coming up, and many of them I can even manufacture myself now. That, for me ended a certain kind of isolation and frustration that was a very good thing to end. For a few years there, I was someone who had a lot of ideas and didn't have anything to do with them. That was frustrating. So if you're in that situation, I know what that's like. The remedy is to keep putting your stuff out there until people notice it and the the opportunities to do that are only increasing. Next question on stoicism. You said you were disappointed in how you've handled some recent battles. What are your strategies moving forward to evolve and prepare when you suit up for the next one? Well, many questions of that sort have come in since my recent misadventures on this podcast. My conversations with Miriam Namazi and Omar Aziz have definitely caused me to recalibrate a few things. I'm going to pick my battles a little more carefully and Probably anticipate the rough spots better than I have. I was surprised by how badly it went with Miriam, and probably shouldn't have been. I was and am astonished at how she's behaved since, circulating almost any terrible article about me that that appears online, and the most recent one, where I was called a white supremacist, is no exception. So I don't know that I could have anticipated that, but with someone like Omar Aziz, I think I could have known and, and would now know based on what he wrote that a productive conversation there was going to be impossible. And I could have cut my losses much earlier in the podcast. Many, many people were mystified by why I spent so much time trying to convince him that Majid and my motives for writing the book weren't mercenary. We were not engaged, as he said, in a get rich quick scheme. People bizarrely think that this has something to do with my being offended by the charge or my wanting to prove myself right or i mean just the criticism i've gotten although there hasn't been that much is mystifying the only reason why i was pushing so hard on that point was that it was the simplest possible claim about which there really was no basis for debate because i know why i wrote the book i know what the realities of publishing are and if omer wasn't able to back off the charge at all, in the face of my counter-argument and counter-evidence. I knew that the conversation was essentially doomed, and it was essentially doomed, but I persisted just on the odd chance that something useful would come out of it. Many of you think something did. Many of you are happy I released that podcast. You think it was useful. Why Omer thought it would be good for him to have it released, is anyone's guess. As far as I can tell, no more than one in 10,000 listeners think he did a good job and came out intact. But I would not willingly have that conversation again. I don't think that conversation was good for the world. I think it was an example of how bad things are, frankly, in the so-called moderate Muslim community. Uh, The contempt he expressed for someone like Majid is so well subscribed that is genuinely troubling because Majid as you've heard I think if you've been paying attention is as wise and rational a person here as you're going to find so I worry about the breakdown of conversation on these points and I don't think broadcasting our failures in the end is especially useful so I I would have been happy not to release that podcast I don't think I should have released the podcast with Miriam I think it did her lasting harm. Many people who used to be a Miriam Namazi fan are no longer. And that was not at all my intention in inviting her on the podcast. So going forward, I think I need to recalibrate a little bit. I think I need to pick my battles better. And should I find myself in a circumstance like that, I uh, plan to do a much better job on my side of the conversation. And the problem really is that I'm at the end of my patience on this topic. I just think that the problem of Islamic theocracy and the layer of liberal obscurantism that surrounds it is excruciatingly boring and yet hugely consequential. There are a few things that that make me as impatient as that conversation. If I'm going to have a conversation like that, I have to be much more mindful of the circuits that are being tripped in me because it's it's a recipe for what you heard, which is me at my least patient. This whole area can turn me into a humorless jerk, and that's not who I want to be. So, next question. Sam, I've never heard you talk about abortion, but then someone's pointing out that I did on the Q&A on Tim Ferriss's podcast, which is in fact true. I did that there at some length, I think. So, there you will find it. Question about the history of Islam. We're always hearing about how Iran was a relatively more liberal nation before the Islamic regimes took over. We hear about how the problem of radical Islam is relatively new in the world, and that historically, Islam was not as violent. If we grant that this is true, does this make religion more or less scary, considering that apparently these violent interpretations can arise suddenly and possibly without even historical context? Well, these facts, insofar as they are facts, cut both ways, as you point out. It's both a hopeful sign that you can point to periods in history where Islam... Looks comparatively benign because that reveals it's possible to have a far less belligerent form of the faith operating. But it also proves that you can fully reboot the so called extremism within the faith by simply paying more attention to what the doctrine actually is or what its most plausible interpretations are. This is something I go into a little bit in my book with Majid. So it does cut both ways. And again, I I think the history here is largely irrelevant. This is actually someplace Omer really wanted to go, and we would have gone had we gotten further into his article. But this appeal to a Muslim golden age, or a time where the doctrine of jihad was just meant an inner spiritual struggle, that is largely fictional, and I think we are now living through a time where a politically correct pseudo history is being put forward as something that, that exonerates religion and Islam in particular, in uh, the role it's played in inspiring tribalism and conflict. A few thoughts on this the notion of a a Muslim golden age. I always find it telling when someone is arguing about how important Islamic civilization has been to the career of our species, that preserving the work of Aristotle always appears somewhere near the top of the list. Let me just think about that for a second. Aristotle was great, don't get me wrong, but he's a single non-Muslim philosopher. And he wasn't perfect, right? I mean, he said many things that impeded the progress of science. I think his importance for future generations was primarily as a counterpoint to a thousand years of Abrahamic religious craziness that practically ruined human history. And I count Christianity as the main offender here. Yes, it is true to say that a millennium ago, the Muslim world was ahead of the Christian West. But that doesn't say anything good about Islam. It's just a reminder of how terrible Christianity was. And as for the ultimate significance of Islamic civilization, Yes, there were Muslims making advances in optics. I think Omer said this somewhere in his article. And one often hears this, but they weren't using these advances to build telescopes and understand the cosmos. They were using them to design religious calendars and more accurately pinpoint the direction of Mecca. Here's the basic fact that the Muslim community just has to grapple with. There are single zip codes in New York and Massachusetts That have produced more of enduring value scientifically, artistically, ethically, politically than the entire Muslim world has produced in a thousand years. And if you think that claim is inaccurate or that it contains a shred of bigotry, you are lying to yourself. Most of you have heard me mention the, the UN Arab Human Development Report, which revealed that the country of Spain translates more of the world's literature and learning into Spanish each year. And the entire Arab world has translated into Arabic since the ninth century. And we're talking about Spain, which is not leading the world intellectually at the moment. Arabs, of course, are only 5% of the world population, but they produce only 1% of the world's books. And a higher percentage of those are religious than anywhere else. Again, that's just the Arab world. But do you really think that adding Indonesia and Malaysia and Iran to the list would suddenly make Islamic culture look as creative as Western culture, or indeed as Jewish culture? Let's run these numbers. Muslims outnumber Jews by 100 to 1. We can talk in round numbers here. There are 15 million Jews and 1.5 billion Muslims. In the last 10 years, in the last 100 years, which community has produced more of lasting value to humanity, intellectually, artistically, or in any other way, Yeah, I'm talking about scientific breakthroughs. I'm talking about new businesses and museums and films, cures for diseases, new methods of purifying water, the good stuff. The good stuff beyond beating your wife or forcing her to live in a bag, or killing victims of rape, or performing clitorectomies on girls. You know, the other good stuff. If you are a so-called moderate Muslim or a liberal, who is even now pulling the brakes on this train as it leaves the station, Please don't pretend not to know the answer to this question. And don't pretend that answering it, or indeed asking it, is an expression of bigotry. This has nothing to do with Muslims being mistreated by the West. The Jews were nearly exterminated in the middle of the 20th century. They were victims of an actual genocide, as opposed to the imaginary genocides, that we often hear about from Islamist apologists describing the treatment of the Palestinians, for instance. Who knows how many brilliant and productive people were reduced to ash by the Nazis? Judging from the people who made it out, people who did more to establish our scientific worldview and literature in the arts than probably any other community in modern history, we probably lost some of the most intelligent and creative people who ever lived. And don't kid yourself that this has something to do with the resources either. Kuwait is a small, wealthy country that spends a lot of money on education. It is far below the world average in math and science, like 20% below. What do you think explains this? It is not historically inaccurate, nor is it a sign of bigotry, to observe that most of human progress arose in the West. Science is a Western breakthrough. Liberal democracy, the rule of law, equality before the law freedom of thought and expression, a universal conception of human rights, separation of church and state. These are almost entirely Western inventions, and they are the foundations of almost everything that is good in our world. And when other cultures have adopted these values, like Japan and South Korea, they have flourished. Take the focus off Islam for a moment, because this seems to help for some bizarre reason. Consider India, Hindu India, Consider the caste system and the practice of sati, the practice of forcing a widow to burn herself alive on her husband's funeral pyre. These bizarre and barbaric practices are entirely the product of Indian religion. The caste system persists, and it's terrible, and it largely explains why India is still so backward, despite incredible economic gains. There are more malnourished and illiterate people in India than anywhere on earth. The practice of sati was effectively stamped out by the British and the Portuguese and the Dutch, which is a very good thing. Can we say that Western notions of human rights and political equality are better than these Indian traditions? Of course. Is it a sign of bigotry to say this? No, in fact, it is bigoted to say that Indians just might be better off with their barbaric traditions. Maybe Indian widows are better off being burned alive after their husbands die. That is bigoted. That is a failure of compassion. Maybe the illiterate street sweeper who has accepted his lot in life and the abuse heaped on him by his neighbors because of his belief in karma and rebirth, maybe he's better off than if he were sent to Oxford and educated. That is bigotry. And no one is tempted to indulge that bigotry on the topic of Hinduism but when we talk about Islam, all of a sudden, the dial on the liberal moral compass just begins spinning uncontrollably, and it suddenly becomes impossible to navigate questions of right and wrong and good and evil. That got my hobby horse rocking again. Next question. This, I think, should probably be the last one. Can you tell us anything about your upcoming book on artificial intelligence? There's some other comments here and questions. It seems that Some of you have figured out who I'm doing this book with. One of you says, I bet it is Eliezer Yudkowski. And then one of you even found a photo of the Future of Life Institute's conference in Puerto Rico I was at. That places both of us in the same place. Yes, that is indeed the case. I've been talking to Eliezer. We're doing a dialogue-based book, although this is somewhat on the back burner for both of us, so it's going a little slowly, but we've been having some very useful conversations and getting them transcribed. I think we'll do something like what I did with Majid, put out a short book in dialogue format. Although we don't have a full manuscript yet, so I, I can't guarantee the outcome, but I, I really have enjoyed talking to Eliezer. And many of you probably don't know who he is, but he's he has a very interesting mind. And we've been talking about AI narrowly, but also just the ethical implications of building Systems more intelligent than ourselves, and the possibility of building minds that can experience more of moral relevance in this universe than we can, which is to say, greater states of consciousness and well being and suffering. This is a fascinating area. Eliezer is a fascinating guy, and, and I will certainly let you know how that conversation proceeds. Just a few more rapid fire questions. I'm just scrolling down here. What are your thoughts on the transgender debate? I really have none. I know very little about this area. I don't actually know anyone who is transgendered. I don't have any strong intuitions about about it, apart from a commitment to political equality, which uh, seems obvious. I think at one point in my conversation with Douglas Murray, he said some things that people interpreted as being disparaging of transgendered people and I, I was faulted for not pushing back at that point. No, I think what I, I took Douglas to be just railing against political correctness on this and really every other topic, I this just a, I have to de- declare my, my ignorance and thus far lack of attention to the issue psychologically and, and scientifically, which is the spirit of the question I'm getting here. So I will pass that by. My position on male circumcision, I've been strangely quiet on this topic, apparently. Maybe the fact that I'm a circumcised male has something to do with that. I think the analogy that people draw between male and female circumcision is a deeply unhelpful one. It, is, it does a lot to minimize the horror of what is happening to little girls throughout this world. There really is no analogy to draw there. I can't say that I'm a supporter of male circumcision. I don't think I would have circumcised a boy had we had one. Nor can I say that I've paid some price, psychological or otherwise, for uh, having been circumcised. So I think it's much less of an issue for me, though I do um, share Hitch's bewilderment at the fact that anyone thought this was an important thing to do to little boys. And my bias is certainly to be against it at this point, because it really is, apart from some tenuous health claims, it does seem to be a practice almost entirely anchored to religion. But don't be misled here. What girls are going through in countries like Somalia and Egypt bears no relation to the circumcision of boys, and it's very important to keep that straight in one's head. What would I be working on if 9 11 hadn't happened and I hadn't written The End of Faith? How would my work be different? Much of what I've done since then, I would still have done. I mean, my interest in consciousness and ethics and topics like free will and the nature of human violence and the possibilities of introspection, meditation, quote, spiritual experience, even my interest in religion, all of that was there. But if I assume that 9 11, didn't happen, and there was not some special problem with jihadism at this point in history. Probably 80% of what I have done since then would be more or less unchanged. I just wouldn't have spent any time talking about Islam or pushing back against its apologists. I can only imagine that would have freed up a fair amount of energy. But as far as topics, I think that the kinds of things you've heard me talk about on this podcast and books like The Moral Landscape and Waking Up and Free Will and Lying. All of that was probably on the menu anyway. And I certainly intend more and more to think about and write about and speak about the topics I would have covered in the absence of the ongoing war on terror, because I've said virtually everything I think on that topic. So as a general matter, it's time to move on, even though when buildings begin to blow up in the capital cities of the free world and innocent people are murdered by religious lunatics and pampered imbeciles lie with impunity about the nature of this problem, from time to time I will feel like I can't hold my tongue. But I'm hoping to be more and more efficient in that area. In any case, this has been another AMA. I hope you found it useful. Once again, apologies for the lingering cold and thank you for listening to the podcast. It really is an honor that so many of you ask questions when I put out the appeal for them. 1,300 questions. That's really quite amazing. I will continue to do these sorts of things as long as you guys find it useful. As always, your support of the podcast is greatly appreciated through Patreon or any of the other means on my website. at samharris.org forward slash donate. And leaving reviews on iTunes and elsewhere is also extremely helpful. Until next time. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are several ways you can support it. You can leave reviews on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can discuss it on your own blog or podcast. Or you can support it directly. And there are two ways you can do this. You can leave a donation through my website at samharris.org forward slash donate. Or you can try a membership at Audible, the world's leading source of audiobooks, at audibletrial.com forward slash samharris.